Well, good morning, New Hope, and welcome to the first ever New Hope live stream event. It is going to be the, the hit of, of YouTube. It's going to be a YouTube sensation. It's going to be incredible. Um, I just uh, thank you so much to, to, to Mary and Kara and Alicia, uh, who, who just came out and um, just sang beautifully and ushered us into this time of worship because um, while gatherings might be uh, postponed, worship continues, right? Worship goes on. Um, and um, I just want to uh, also extend a humble and uh, just, I can't express enough how grateful and thankful I am for Dan Halaski. If you get a chance today, uh, send him a text, uh, send him an email, just, just love on Dan because this guy has just worked tirelessly over the last few days to make sure this event has happened. Thank you so much, Dan. But I love this. It's, it's like Wayne's World for church. You know, you know, party time. Excellent. Party on, Dan. Okay. All right. Anyway, if you're anything like me, uh, I'd imagine that you are eager to think about anything other than viruses. Um, We are still in Lent, and we're still trekking through the book of Exodus in this series, An Inheritance of Freedom. The passage we're in today, it's, it's meant a lot to the development of my faith, and it means a lot to me personally. I, um, I graduated in 1999, graduated high school, and I was about five years into my faith at that time. And um, I was beginning, when I graduated, I was beginning to regret that I had spent the previous four years of my high school experience uh, largely ignoring my academic life. Um, throughout grade school and high school, I was always the type of student who liked to do just the bare minimum. I didn't get really bad grades, and I didn't get failing grades. I, I got lazy grades. I got B's and C's because that's what it would take to keep my mom off my case. I remember the night of graduation. I had, you know, was in my cap and, and gown, and we were ushered down this hallway. And at some point, we were given our, our last instructions, right? Our last instructions as students are like last instructions as children. And I had watched my friend Matt Fisher, who was here last week. Um, he received his, uh, his diploma as the salutatorian, right? Because his grades were the second highest um, in the class. And this is one of my best friends in school, and, and I was not anywhere near that upper echelon. But as we're going down this hallway, uh, a teacher hands me this envelope, which includes my final report card and I, and I think some kind of like high school transcript. And it hit me like a ton of bricks how I had basically flushed this education down the toilet. I had spent the previous years more concerned with girls or music or theater, anything but education. And in the following months, I watched as my friends went away to college and I stayed home. And then something happened. Something happened that changed my life forever. That's the best part of a story, right? Whenever you hear somebody give their testimony, and then they they get to that point where it's like, and then something happened, and then God moved. See, I had always had this kind of interest in matters of faith, and I had started even thinking that, like, maybe one day I'd like to give my life to ministry, but somehow, 
In the fall of 1999, I fell in love with this thing called theology. I was bumming around Greenleaf Bookstore in Parkville one afternoon, and I saw this, this cassette tape series. A cassette tape, it, anyway, it's right. It, a, a tape, uh, it was a cassette tape series by the teacher R.C. Sproul, um, and it was called One Holy Passion. It was a six-week, uh, six-week, six-part series on the attributes of God. A lot of my friends were Christians, um, but this was the kind of thing that, like, made them fall asleep. But listening to these tapes was one of the most powerful experiences of worship I had ever had. I know that sounds weird. I started to feel like there was something wrong with me. See, we had these powerful worship music experiences at our church, and I watched in worship service as so many people, they were raising their hands and they were expressing, you know, visible and audible signs of worship. And I loved the music and I appreciated that so many others were so enjoying um, the freedom to worship. But, but I could tell that, that I didn't feel like I was in quite the same place that they were. I, I thought something was wrong with me. Um, and I didn't want to fake it. But then one day, I found myself listening to this tape by R.C. Sproul giving a lecture called, Can God Die? And I suddenly felt my faith become alive with worship, and I just hungered for more. Not only did my faith become uh, more alive, my, my kind of my intellectual um, uh, persona, my, my, my mind came alive. I started wanting to learn. I started wanting to hunger for education and, and discipleship. So we're now in the third chapter of the book of Exodus. And if you have your Bibles, which you should because you're at home, um, you could turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start picking up the pace, doing more than one chapter a week. In week one, we saw how the family of Israel matured over the centuries to become the people of Israel. It's important that we see that in Genesis, um, we're talking about one family and their story of how God is going to use them to bring about blessing to the whole world. And then in Exodus, it turns a corner. In the beginning of Exodus, we see how this family now becomes a people who fill the land of Egypt. And in so doing, they threaten the king of that land, Pharaoh. Exodus paints a picture of Pharaoh as a sort of the, like the personification of monstrous evil. Much of what we see from, from God in the book of Exodus is actually going to be in light of his holy response to that evil. First, there is the fear that as Pharaoh begins to see this group of people as other. That fear leads to injustice and ultimately to genocide as Pharaoh demands the death of the sons of Israel. In the context of that hostile environment, two Hebrews from the tribe of Levi, they marry and they have a son. And they hide this son as long as they can. And then one day they place this child in the river. 
where the daughter of Pharaoh himself finds this child and ends up taking him into her home. And she calls this child Moses, a name which implies that he was drawn out of the river. And and then Moses, he grows up in the household of Pharaoh. Despite Hollywood embellishments, we know very little of Moses' childhood. But we read that one day, something in Moses snapped as he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Moses was struck down, uh, struck down this Egyptian and, and hit him in the sand. The next day, it, it became evident that not only did his own people uh, know of the encounter, the Israelites knew of the encounter, the Hebrews knew, but, but also Pharaoh knew as well. And the text tells us that Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. Moses fled southeast to the land of Midian, where he met a priest named Ruel, who also is called Jethro. After saving Jethro's daughters from roaming hooligans, Jethro allows Moses to marry his daughter Zipporah, and the couple have a son named Gershom. From other areas of the Bible, we discover that Moses was 40 years old when he left Egypt. And then another 40 years go by while he was working for his father-in-law, Jethro. It's like two lifetimes have gone by. Moses, he had a life in Egypt, and then he had a life in Midian. But both of these lives were lives of wilderness. Both of these lives were like away from the common. His, his first led this At first, he led this life as an Egyptian, right? Removed from his people as he watched their sufferings. Then he led the life of exile. Removed from Egypt as, as an enemy. And removed from his people as he lived the life of a stranger in the land of Midian. I mean, can you relate to Moses here? Have you ever felt like you were away from where you were supposed to be. I think that one of the most common things I hear from folks outside the church when I tell them I'm a pastor is how much they don't need the church because the church is full of hypocrites and liars. If I have my wits about me, I might make a snide remark about how they're talking about my friends. And then I'll often double back, and they'll often double back and say that, you know, they're not really talking about my church and, you know, They'll skate around my attempts at inviting them to be a part of what we have here. What they don't realize is, and what Moses didn't realize, is that as much as they need God's people, it is also true that God's people need them. Moses had somehow escaped the life of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, and now he was in this strange land, living a life that he was never supposed to lead. But a powerful thing is about to happen because at the end of chapter 2, we read that one day the king of Egypt died and God heard the cry of his people. God remembered his covenant that he had begun with father Abraham and gone through Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Exodus tells us that God saw the people of Israel, and this might be my favorite little phrase in the book of Exodus so far, and God knew. 
He knew their sufferings. He knew their hurt, their pain. He heard their cry. He knew why they were crying. And he would once again call now on one family to action in order to start an avalanche of redemption. So, Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. I want to go check this thing out. Why is this bush not burning? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals, uh, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses, he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The reason, let's be clear, why the ground was holy was because God is holy. There wasn't anything particularly special about that mountain. God would do great things there, to be sure, but the ground was holy. The place was holy because that is where God's presence was. Moses is instructed to remove his sandals um, and hide his face from God. He hides his face from God because he is afraid to look upon the holiness of God. The concept of holiness is one of the most crucial aspects of theology and therefore the Christian faith. You see, our faith doesn't make much sense without the fact that God is holy. And God isn't just like partially holy. He isn't mostly holy. Um, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, God is holy, holy, holy. You'll, you'll notice in the biblical narrative that, that space is limited, right? Oftentimes stories don't include the details that we might have wanted them to include. But Isaiah uses the space to say that God isn't just holy. He isn't just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And not only that, we're told that God desires holiness, not just from his people, meaning that he doesn't just want their obedience, he certainly does want their obedience, but, but God's desire, it, it's even better than that. He wants holiness not just from his people, he wants holiness for his people. He wants them to be holy because that's what he is. The word holy means to be set apart, or to, to be different. We get in trouble when we define God's holiness as like perfection, because that might be just a little too much of a Western idea, right? Perfection might imply a doneness, right corners, um, like it's, uh, it, 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 there's, it's not moving, it's static. 
Our God, on the other hand, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creative God whose Holy Spirit is constantly moving throughout His creation. Our God is a God of growth, and this creation is anything but done. The challenge for us is that our sinful nature plays this distance between us and God. The incredible thing about our God is that although He is holy, His holiness demands eternal and divine love. As such, God is the one who defines love. God is the way we understand what love really is. See, left to our own devices, we would define love in ways that is anything but holy. We would, use, uh, we would define love using selfish pleasures or warm, fuzzy feelings th- that would lead to things like greed and manipulation and domination over creation. Because if we were left to our own devices um, to define love, it, it, would, it would lead to a love that is sinful. Instead, we look to God to define love for us. Why can we trust God's love? Because God's love is holy. Now, if you're at home, a little project for you. Draw a circle on a sheet of paper. The, the circle, uh, the center of that circle represents God's holiness. Now, take a pen and just make a little mark inside that circle. That mark could represent a sin. God's holy character demands that the circle stay free from the marks of sin, so that sin can't remain. Because God is holy, it would be just of Him to expel the mark from His holy character, and therefore it would be just of Him to expel the one who made the mark from His holy presence. Now, we hear that, and we want to cry out, that's not fair, right? You want too much, God. Nobody's perfect, God. But I ask you, how much of human sinfulness do you want our God to tolerate? Just your sin? Just the sin of your friends? What about systemic sin? How much of the problem of human bondage to sin do you want God to turn his back on and ignore? We might want God to turn his back on our own personal naughtiness, but do we want him to turn his back on war or human trafficking or hate or violence or racism or addictions? My hope is that if we're honest, our response would be that we don't want one ounce of that circle. We don't want one ounce of God's holiness to be compromised and tainted by human sinfulness. And in that, you can rest for just a moment, right? You can rest in the knowledge that God's holiness will not be compromised. God cannot be unholy. He can't not be holy. And two really important things about that. First, you wouldn't want it any other way. The Greeks showed us pictures of unholy gods, and they were a complete mess. Zeus and his lot were far more wrapped up in their own drama to truly care about humanity. 
Over the past century, comic books and comic book movies have showed us examples of what unholy deity looks like. Um, for those with ears to hear, think about Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen or Kurt Russell's character Ego in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And those were just fictional examples of deities that were real in their own stories. It gets far darker when we look at historical examples from real life of mortal men and women who fashion themselves deities and then use that lie to keep their people in line and oppress them, people like the pharaohs of Egypt and the Caesars of Rome. This is why the Hebrew concept of monotheism um, is so vital to understanding the ancient world. Hebrews believed that there is one God and that God is one. And now we see that this one God, this dynamic one creative, uh, creating God, is holy. You wouldn't want it any other way. But the second really important thing about the fact that God can't not be holy is that we, by nature, are not. That's a problem. We, by nature, miss the mark. And remember, God by nature is holy, and holiness demands justice, but holiness also demands love. And that, church, that is the story that we find ourselves in We find ourselves in the narrative of how God's holy love and his holy justice become one. Now the ultimate fulfillment of that is the Christ event, right? You you see, it, it, it would be just of God to expel the sinner of his holy character. But God isn't just eternally just, he is eternally merciful. And in his mercy, he dealt with the bondage of sin once and for all on the cross. And as Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to imagine a picture of of what does it look like for God's holy justice to meet his holy love, look at the cross. I jump the gun like that because we're in Lent And I don't want you for an instant to lose sight of the fact that the reason why we're considering the story of Exodus is because this story is emblematic of the larger story of salvation that God is telling. It is of vital importance for us to remember that what God does for Israel in and through Moses is what God ultimately wants to do for the whole world in Jesus Christ. God tells Moses that he has surely seen the affliction of his people. God says that he knows their suffering. He tells Moses that he has come down, a God who comes down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and that he intends to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey. God says, Moses, I have heard the cry of my people, and I'm going to send you to Pharaoh in order that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It is at that point that Scripture tells us that Moses asked the two most important questions that a human being can ask. 
First, Moses asks, who am I? Meaning, who am I to do such a thing, God? And then he asks, who are you? That, friends, if you wrestle with nothing else this Lenten season or this coronavirus season, is that is what I want you to wrestle with is those two questions. I want you to ask God who you are. Maybe that begins with asking yourself who you are. I want you to be honest. Be honest about your past. Be honest about your fears. Be honest about your insecurities. Honest about your anxieties, your brokenness, your sinfulness, but also your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your joys. What makes you cry? If God hears the cries of his people, what are you crying out for? What, do you, what makes you lie awake at night asking God? What makes you lie awake thinking about this problem of humanity? In short, what makes you, you? And then, you take everything that is you, even the bits that wouldn't be allowed in the circle, and then you ask God, who are you? Moses said to God, if I go to the people and I announce to them that, you know, we're leaving, suppose one of them asks me what your name is. What should I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, the, the text provides the, the, the Hebrew consonants, Y-H-W-H, which uh, with the verbs is often pronounced Yahweh. Some have drawn attention to the idea that the name itself, the name Yahweh itself, it's like breathing. Uh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Like, like every time you breathe, you are saying the name of God. Uh, this name, I am it speaks to one of the most significant attributes of God. We already talked about God's holiness, but now we get this really funny word, this cool word that I learned from R.C. Sproul. We now see the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Everybody should learn that word. To refer to God's aseity is to refer to his self-existence. This is what got me hooked on theology as I listened to that lecture by Sproul. He said that if anything exists, then something has to have the power of self-existence. See, we are mortal. We are finite beings. We live and die. We are dependent. At the very least, you would have to agree that your existence was dependent upon your parents. You were dependent upon the mechanism that brought you into this world. The challenge there is that the mechanism that brought you into this world was also dependent upon the mechanisms that brought it into this, them into the world. So, so your parents had parents who had parents who had parents and so on and so on and so on. But, but if we keep going back further... We eventually, we eventually run into the existential problem that philosophers have been wrestling with for centuries. And that existential problem, that fundamental problem, is that something can't come from nothing. And Sproul said, if anything exists, 
Something has to have the power of existence. A child asks the question, who created me? And we might say, well, God created you. Well, who created my parents? Well, God created your parents. Well, who created the oceans? God created the oceans. All right, who created God? The mistake would be to say something like, well, God created himself. The problem there is that it would be impossible for God to create himself because for God to create himself, he would have to exist outside of himself and therefore would have to be before he is. Go on cross-eyed. Instead, God is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the self-existent one. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the one in whom all existence depends upon. So, why is that important? What's the take-home application to that? When we say, in the face of slavery, in the face of um, economic crisis, in the, uh, in, in the face of, 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 of financial crisis, in the face of, um, of everything that we're going through right now, in the face of, of this coronavirus, when we say that God is in control, we mean it. When we say that God is in control, we are talking about a holy God whose very character demands that he responds to the needs of this world in a way that is, another heavy word, incarnational. In such a way that he, as it says here in Exodus, he comes down. See, yeah, God is holy. He is set apart. He is holy, holy, holy. But that holiness demands that then he turn towards his people, that he moves towards his people. Is pain a reality? Of course pain's a reality. Of course pain um, is unfortunately going to be a part of um, the, the results of sinfulness in our society. But God remains in control. Let me pray. Father, we... Um, are awestruck at this uh, uncharted territory, at this concept that um, every area of our life is going to be affected over the coming months, and we don't know when it's going to end. We don't know what the weeks will hold, the months will hold. We don't know what summer is going to look like. We don't know how this is going to affect our jobs. But we do know that you are holy. We do know that you are in control. We do know that there is nothing that deserves our trust more than your holy character. Father, I just ask that, that you would um, help us rest in that truth and that when we respond in the inevitable ways, the difficult ways that we're going to need to respond over the coming weeks, that we would do so with a reliance on your holy character, on, uh, and under the understanding that you are God and we are not. When we respond in love to others who are afraid, we do so 
with kindness, with gentleness, respect. We don't insult other people who are, are having a hard time with this. It's understandable that people would have a hard time with this. Our response then is holiness. Our response is, is uh, gentleness and respect and kindness. You have given us the freedom to respond that way. You have given us the freedom to live a life so saturated in justice and love because that is the price that you paid for us on the cross. The cross is not only the, um, the, the, our method of redemption, an instrument of redemption. The cross is the shape of our mission. It's the way that we love others as well as we pick up our cross, as we serve others and spread love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control out to this world that is desperate and broken. Father, help us be the church during this season. Help us to, to, to be the church to a broken world. Help us to have courage and strength where it's needed. And help us to make wise choices in the days ahead. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.